Hi there, and welcome to another episode of West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues critical to the health of the American West. I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of High Country News, broadcasting from the studios of our partner, KVNF, in Peonia, Colorado. We have a really special episode for you today. I'm going to be speaking with journalist and author Florence Williams, who has published a new book on nature's impact on the brain. The book is called The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. I'm joined by Florence, who is in Washington, D.C., via Skype. Welcome, Florence. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for having me on. Before we talk about your book, we should say that you are a member of our board of directors at High Country News, and that's a relationship that grew out of your being an intern at the magazine earlier in your career. So we're honored to have you back, so to speak, in Paonia. Uh, in our upcoming issue of the magazine, we've published an excerpt of The Nature Fix that we'll talk about a little bit later, but I wonder if you could just talk a bit about why you thought this book needed to be written and what you hope to find out as you set to reporting it. So I got inspired to write this book because of a big change going on in my own life. Uh, I moved from Colorado, uh, from the Rocky Mountains, where I had lived for 20 years, to Washington, D.C., and it was, you know, a huge, a huge shift. And I noticed that my body kind of responded to this shift. You know, after I got to the big city, I was so bothered by the noise. I was bothered by the gray. I was bothered by, um, you know, the asphalt and the concrete. I wasn't sleeping so well. Um, I felt more anxious. And certainly there were a lot of things going on, but I, I you know, was aware of you know, some of the old chestnuts, right, that we've all heard forever about how nature is so good for our mental health. And so I decided to kind of dip into that, you know, more deeply and find out what the current state of the science really was saying about this. Was nature deficit disorder, you know, a real thing? And was I, in fact, really experiencing experiencing it? And if I was, was there something I could do about it? So it, it really started from a personal line of inquiry. And in the book, you call it uh, a epidemic dislocation from the outdoors. Do you feel like, uh, as you reported this book, that you were reporting on a real epidemic? Or, you know, the book kind of unfolds as a personal sort of search, but um, I'm just wondering about whether or not how much of an epidemic we're dealing with. Yeah, very much. What, what I learned was that we're really living in the middle of the largest mass migration in human history, and it's the migration to cities and it's also really the migration indoors. And so my personal life, you know, ended up um, sort of personifying that, uh, you know, that, that international trend. So it's to the point now where more than 50% of people on the planet live in cities. And that's a new statistic. It's really just happened in the last few years. Already in the United States, about 70% of us live in cities. Uh, so, you know, I, I just kind of, um, you know, embodied that statistic. And if it was affecting me, you know, it made me think, well, what's it doing to our children? What's it doing to, you know, the rest of people who live in cities? And are there ways that we can kind of, um, you know, redesign our lives to be more connected with nature if it really is so important to us? And so how do you set about finding something like that out? Well, I got really lucky because I got an assignment from Outside Magazine, and they sent me to Japan, which is a country that is really taking the science very seriously. You know, it wasn't sort of enough for them to just follow their haiku tradition of, you know, being connected to moonlight and falling leaves. They really wanted to quantify what was going on in people's nervous systems in different environments. 
Uh, and so I, so I went to Japan, I interviewed these scientists, and I even did some of the experiments myself, <laughs> where I sort of tested my cortisol level and my heart rate uh, and my blood pressure uh, in different environments. And, and this, the experimental design there was they were sending volunteers to walk in a forest setting pretty close to Tokyo, maybe a couple of hours out of Tokyo, for about 15 minutes, just 15 minutes, and then sending people to walk in an urban center. Uh, and just seeing what was going on with their with their nervous systems. And sure enough, they were finding out things like, you know, blood pressure was dropping 4%, heart rate was dropping 2%, cortisol levels were dropping 16% in these green environments, um, but not in the urban environments. Huh. So that really, that, you know, that really sort of started off the investigation. And then I would say I got kind of lucky again, <laughs> because then I got an assignment from National Geographic. Uh, and, and National Geographic actually ended up sending me kind of around the world. I went to just a number of countries in Asia and in Europe, uh, you know, also places that are sort of ahead of the U.S. in terms of really trying to quantify some of these fine things. Uh, and then I, you know, I spent time with forest kindergartens, uh, you know, because I wanted to see real people too, not just sort of what the science was saying, but then how, you know, how countries were sort of medicalizing the findings and how kind of real people were using the findings. So I went to Finland uh, and Finland has this um, kind of funny official recommendation, which is that they think that people should get five hours a month minimum of time in nature in order to ward off depression, you know, which kind of cracks me up because this is a very specific recommendation. You need at least five hours a month. <laughs> well, and of course, the Scandinavian country is very susceptible to depression, a sort of seasonal depression and darkness kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Scandinavia, had, they call it the Scandinavian paradox. You know, they're sort of the happiest countries on earth, but they also have incredibly high rates of suicide, um, depression, alcoholism. And uh, they also have, of course, public medical care social, and socialized medicine. And so, you know, it's, it's important to these countries to figure out how to really prevent depression, um, as well as to help people who are already, you know, burnt out from their jobs or not being sort of productive at work. So they can actually save money if they tell people to go use these forests and parks that are, you know, all over Finland. Finland is, a, I think it's one of the most heavily forested countries in the world, actually. It's about 70% forest. So they've got this forest. And if people can use it, you know, they have figured out that they can actually save a lot of money in healthcare. Huh. So what's really interesting about this, if we could just back up for a second, is that all of these other countries sort of lack this one thing that America is they're very, very proud of, this these big, huge public lands and wild spaces. But they're actually... You know, what's the relationship, do you think, between America having those things and maybe we're taking taking them for granted versus these other countries that have had to now like scientifically study how to get into nature? Did you sort of feel did you feel that kind of difference as you were out there reporting? I did a little bit. And it, it really sort of gets to the question of how do you define nature? Uh -huh. <laughs> and there are, you know, lots of different levels of it. I mean, some of these effects that scientists are documenting happen, you know, within micro bursts of nature or micro doses of nature. They come from listening to bird song or even looking out a window at a tree. So uh, I think it would be a mistake to think you have to find big, beautiful wilderness areas or even parks in order to benefit from nature. So that's one point. But another point is I think that we Americans maybe, um, I think we exaggerate 
how special we are <laughs> in terms of our parks and wilderness areas. Because Certainly. if there's one, right, I mean, if there's one good thing we've done, it's actually, we, you know, we've exported this idea to other countries. Um, and certainly there are amazing natural areas all over the world. And, and partly they're protected, I think, because of the uh, American model. But um, it's, not, it's not like we're the only ones who have it. <laughs> Right. That's right. Um, I think that's a really interesting question, too, about about nature and one I think that bounces around a bit um, philosophically. Um, but in in this particular case, did you have to sort of go about defining nature for yourself to even do this book or did you sort of just use the conventional sort of sense of nature? Yeah, I did. I struggled with that quite a bit because I think I was very spoiled, you know, and I'd lived in the Rocky Mountains for a long time and I personally think that nature should be beautiful and should be pretty spectacular. And I, I was lucky enough to live a life, you know, where I could spend time at these relatively unpeopled landscapes. Um, but but I, I ended up having a much more generous definition of it and, and embracing a more generous definition. And, and one of the ones that I found kind of amusing and, but also helpful is Oscar Wilde's definition. And his definition of nature is a place where birds fly around uncooked. <laughs> <laughs> I like that too. <laughs> well, it, it made me appreciate the fact that, you know, even in cities, there is nature. We can find nature. We can find, uh, you know, enough to connect with in a way that, that can really benefit us. And, and it doesn't have to be pristine. It doesn't have to be unpeopled. Um, and we, we may have sort of different thresholds. I mean, I, I feel like when I go to a really busy city park, it, you know, I, I still get sort of annoyed by all the people and the bikes and the airplanes flying overhead. Um, sure. <laughs> but, but even when I'm annoyed, you know, there is a benefit there. I, I, I would hate to miss a chance to inject some poetry into our uh, podcast. So, you know, I, I think the, the Japanese idea here expressed by Basho uh, that you put into the uh, one of the chapters of your books is uh, – there is nothing you can see that is not a flower. There is nothing you can think that is not the moon. I think is a very lovely way of describing maybe what Oscar Wilde put a different way. Um, right. Uh, but to sort of move into the science a little bit, um, you, you write here that one of the compelling theories about nature is that it acts like an advanced drug. Uh, and I kind of wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, what you found in terms of nature as a medicine. Yeah, I think it's the, the idea of uh, medicalizing nature or sort of trying to figure out doses of nature is, is really quite new. And it's a provocative way to think about it because uh, it really puts us into the realm of mental health. You know, we, we have right now, I would argue, pretty inadequate ways of addressing mental health. Uh, and this is something I, I really ran across when researching the veterans uh, who have PTSD, you know, who I write about uh, in this issue. Um, they're not, it's not easy to cure PTSD and, and the conventional treatments are, um, you know, things like, um, cognitive therapy, uh, and of course, lots of medication, uh, and, and the success rates really aren't that great. And so uh, the idea of, of looking at nature as sort of, you know, a complementary medicine or an alternative medicine, um, I, I think is a really powerful one, partly because, you know, what we're doing now just, just isn't really working. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, and we could walk back a little bit to your experience at the uh, in Japan at the Nippon Medical School. Uh, you went to a lab there, uh, and you sort of got tested for blood pressure, basically. Is that right? 
Yeah, I did. So one of the theories in Japan, you know, everyone's trying to figure out, okay, if we know nature makes, you know, makes you feel better, if we know it calms you down and it, uh, sort of improves your creativity, what's the mechanism? You know, like what is actually happening in your brain uh, to, to make this work. And so one of the theories in Japan that's pretty popular is that it all has to do with smell. <laughs> and they love the way their forests smell. They have a lot of Hinoki cypress trees, mm-hmm. and these are evergreens. They smell really wonderful. They're sort of turpentine meets Christmas tree, sort of mm-hmm. one way I think about it. And, and it is a very invigorating kind of um, scent when you walk into these forests. So there's a researcher there um, who is measuring how just smell, how inhaling these substances really changes your blood pressure. So I went to his lab and he, you know, he, he had me stick my arm in a blood pressure monitor. We got my blood pressure and then he kind of popped open this cork of Hinoki essential oil. And I inhaled this incredible, you know, smell. Uh, And then I put my arm in the blood pressure machine again and it dropped really dramatically. My blood pressure dropped like six points or something just after inhaling this for a couple of minutes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or not even a couple of minutes, I mean, a couple of seconds of inhaling it. And there's this great scene in there where he's, he's, he's sort of giggling, saying, this is very toxic, but it's very good. Uh, and it was, <laughs> right, don't uh, eat it. <laughs> it. It was 12 points that, uh, that your blood pressure dropped. It was 12 points. Oh, my gosh. See, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. um, well, and, I, and, and it's funny, too, because, you know, they almost fetishize this substance, the smell. Like I, in South Korea, you know, which is also really into Hinoki cypress trees, partly because the Japanese actually planted them in South Korea, which is kind of an, an issue politically, but, but they actually really like these trees. So they, they actually sell some of the resorts and spas in South Korea sell um, Hinoki-scented toothpaste <laughs> and Hinoki-scented you know, shampoo and Hinoki-scented soaps. <laughs> it's sort of everywhere. And it's, you know, I have to say, I mean, I, I, I brought some home. I brought some toothpaste home. I gave it away as gifts. And it's it's weird. <laughs> you know, we're used to kind of like wintergreen or evergreen or whatever. And, and this is like, it's just like gnashing kind of a Christmas wreath between your teeth. If you're just joining us, you're listening to West Obsessed. Uh, this is where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues critical to the health of the American West. I'm Brian Calvert, the managing editor of High Country News, and I'm here with journalist and author Florence Williams. Uh, we're discussing nature's impact on the brain. Uh, so as you were reporting this book, kind of in, in the middle of the project, you had a bit of a, a, a personal tragedy where your father was struck by a car. Um, and I, I kind of wonder if you could talk a little bit about your decision to put that into the book and, and sort of what unfolded from there. Yes. Uh, he was, my dad is 75, well, was 75, and he was hit by a car uh, just outside of Washington, D.C., sort of walking to work. Uh, and he was actually in the hospital with a traumatic brain injury and seven bo- broken bones. He was in the hospital for about three months, most of that time uh, in a sort of neuro rehab facility. And because I was researching this book at the time, uh, I was reading a lot about some, some of the seminal studies actually took place um, in hospitals and looking at hospital views. One of the most important studies was in the early 80s, um, a researcher named um, Roger Ulrich. And he looked at recovery rates of patients who had had gallbladder surgery. Uh, and he just went back and he looked at records. And half the patients had uh, rooms with views of trees, and half the patients had rooms with views of a brick wall. 
And it turns out that the, the patients who were in the rooms with the trees had um, much shorter recovery times. They requested uh, fewer pain meds. Um, the nurses reported that they sort of were happier and had better attitudes. Uh, and so when my father was, you know, hospitalized, one of the first things I did was I made sure he got a room with a window um, and that he was on the side of the room that had the window. Um, and, you know, I was also reading Florence Nightingale uh, at the time, who wrote, you know, this famous kind of nursing um, handbook uh, 155 years ago. And, you know, she knew that patients really need fresh air, they need sunlight. She noticed that that patients would often, really sick patients would turn their heads to the sunlight coming in the windows, almost like a houseplant. Uh, and, and yet in the 155 years since she wrote that, you know, we've kind of lost sight of that, of kind of how important the environment is to healing. So um, I don't know if it helped my dad, but uh, it didn't seem to hurt. Hmm. How long was his uh, recuperation in the hospital? Uh, he was in the neuro rehab facility for uh, about a month and a half. Uh, and then in, you know, sort of other parts of the hospital before that, like in intensive care, you know, for many weeks before that. And and now I'm really happy to report he's doing great. And in fact, it was my dad who really introduced me to nature as a kid. Mm. Uh, and so I, I do talk about him quite a bit in the book. And I, I was happy to be able to, you know, sort of weave that story of his recovery in into the book. Yeah, I think it, it's a... Um... You know, it's a really interesting turn that the book takes as you're sort of walking through some of the science and some of these uh, more interesting sort of experiences that you're having, and then suddenly you have this this turn. And I'm wondering, you know, obviously at the time you weren't really sure what the outcome would be, um, so uh, you know, presumably it's a very stressful time. And, and I wonder if you incorporated some of the things that you were finding in your reporting into your own sort of uh, mental health in, in terms of uh, de- dealing with this recovery. Yeah, I did. And I, uh, I, I was, I did spend a lot of time with my dad and this rehab facility. Um, he was at, um, national, uh, rehab hospital in Washington, which is a really great facility. And, and there is a little garden there. And I made an effort to, to sort of wheel him around this garden, um, for his sake, but also really for my sake, you know, when you're in a hospital setting, it's, it's very nature deprived, you know, it's a lot of, um, fluorescent lights and a lot of beeping sounds, um, and I think that it's it's really good for caregivers. It's important for caregivers just to get out and take a walk, get some fresh air. So I, I definitely tried to do that also. Hmm. And just to sort of stick with this for a little bit, because the window studies, as you call them in your book, um, kind of have broader implications, not just in a hospital, right? So there are schools, offices, housing projects. What did we learn about um, just being able to see nature? Yeah, after Roger Ulrich's kind of seminal window hospital study, uh, there there have actually been a whole series of what I call window studies, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they're 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 really just compelling and interesting. Um, it, one set of them looked at housing projects, public housing projects uh, in the Chicago area, uh, and a researcher there, Francis Quo, found out that um, both kids and single moms in these housing projects who had views of um, trees and grass, as opposed to uh, more kind of urban um, concrete views of courtyards, um, they had better emotional regulation. They had sort of better attention, um, less kind of uh, self-reports of aggression. Uh, and a lot of these are based on questionnaires. And, you know, it's hard to tease out cause and effect. But then what she actually did was she looked at police records 
uh, in housing projects that had um, kind of greener courtyards compared to housing projects that had really, you know, urban, you know, grassless courtyards. And she found that, in fact, in those greener courtyard housing projects, there were lower rates of crime um, and, and lower police sort of involvement. And she she said, you know, we don't really know exactly why this is. It might not necessarily be because of the grass, you know, or the tree itself making people feel better. It may be because nature also facilitates a whole bunch of other things that people need to be sort of healthy and functional, such as social connection. So the housing projects that had these beautiful courtyards, people spent more time outside and they spent more time hanging out together and getting to know each other um, and sort of keeping an eye on each other. So even though she wasn't exactly sure what was going on, somehow the nature really facilitated, you know, this sort of whole better outcome. Yeah, I think that's sort of what was interesting to me, too, in this book was um, these sort of questions that get at, you know, there's, I guess I sort of expected in the book that we would really be talking about just nature on the brain. And, uh you know, I kind of realized as I was going through the book that that's really not a great way to think about it no matter what in this sort of mechanical, uh, you know, chemical way, even though there is some of that in the book. But there are these other things where you just start to get a sense of its holistic participation, I guess, in a system or, you know, that that nature as around us, there, there are things that we can tell that it does, but we don't exactly know why. Um, and so I'm wondering if you sort of set out thinking that you might find more about re- real effect on like brain chemistry or that you knew right away that you were in, in, a, in a bigger question. I'm a little bit of a neuroscience geek. Mm-hmm. You know, I like brain studies and I, um, you know, I'm interested by that. But it turns out that uh, it's really hard to study the brain and there's so much we don't know about it. And if you if you do studies with a functional MRI, which is, you know, sort of a way to image the brain, um, uh, it's actually very imprecise. You know, we see blood flowing kind of more in one part of the brain than another part of the brain. But now I think scientists are realizing that, oh, actually, no, all of our parts of the brain are really interconnected. And it's very hard to say, okay, this little piece of real estate in your brain, um, you know, governs, um, uh, you know, violence, and this part governs happiness, or this part, you know, um, governs, um, uh, you know, depression, it sort of doesn't really work that way. And so even though there are a lot of brain studies I talk about in the book, and some of them are really interesting, they're more suggestive than definitive. One of my favorite studies uh, took place at Stanford, a researcher named Greg Bratman, and he sent subjects uh, to walk uh, in this sort of pretty park around Palo Alto called the Stanford Dish. It's very, uh, you know, a lot of green space. Uh, and then he sent another group, of sub- uh, another group of subjects to walk around downtown Palo Alto, which is very urban. And he, he measured their brains um, and found that, that in, the, in the sort of park walkers, they had less activation in the frontal cortex, a part of their brain called the subgenual prefrontal cortex. Uh, and that's a part of the brain that, that seems to govern um, ruminative, kind of obsessive, negative thinking. Uh, and this has been clearly linked to depression in a lot of patients. So patients who are depressed tend to sort of you know, overly obsess over negative thoughts. Uh, and, and he thinks that that's the part of the brain where that happens. Uh, and so it was really interesting that the brain, that part of the brain really quieted down in nature, but it didn't quiet down in the city. And I think one of the biggest questions that that, uh, that raises is, well, if that part of the brain isn't activated in nature, then where is that blood flow going? You know, what parts of the brain are activated? 
And, and that's the answer nobody really knows. But some of the studies seem to suggest that when people are out in nature, they're more empathic. Um, they're more compassionate. Um, they're more creative about um, sort of, you know, daydreaming about their life purpose or about their um, self-concept. You know, these kinds of like just larger um, identity kinds of questions. Wait, so that, I have a question about that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in other words... Our, our heart is pumping blood at a certain rate and that blood has to go to certain places in the brain at that rate. And this is something I just never really thought of before. So uh, <laughs> depending on what you're thinking about or what you're doing, that blood is going to different spaces. You just only have like a certain amount. You only have a certain capacity for that. And now they don't really know if it's not going, you know, if you're not sort of flooding the worry box, where does it go? Is that what you're saying? Oh, I like that. That's the worry box. Yeah. If it's not going to the worry box, where is it going? And I think the you know the people who you know study nature and and are advocates for preserving nature, I think they hope it goes to like you know these really good boxes as opposed to the worry boxes. They go to like the um, the love your neighbor box and the you know um, care about conservation box. Uh, who knows? <laughs> uh, yeah, hopefully that other. One. Yeah, hopefully those. Uh, well, you know, so a lot of these things kind of come to a head, and and, I, and what I think is one of the major. Um, you know, majorly important stories of our time, sort of post 9-11, post sort of, or, or, you know, in the middle of the war on terror, arguably we're still in it. Um, the idea that veterans with PTSD uh, can somehow benefit from whatever happens when nature's on the brain. And I, I wonder if you could just talk about your trip down the Salmon River. Yeah, I found out about an all-women's trip down the main stem of the salmon for women veterans with PTSD. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to get invited on that trip to sort of, um, you know, witness what happened to these women after, you know, five or six days in the wilderness. I'd already looked at what happens after 20 minutes in nature, and I'd looked at what happens after, you know, 90 minutes in nature and what happens after three days in nature. <laughs> but this was a bigger, deeper immersion. And it was a very powerful experience for me because um, some some of the research posits very interestingly that that wilderness can actually facilitate a kind of anti PTSD effect hmm. um, because w people who have PTSD um, tend to be very um, sort of closed off from the world. They're isolated. They're fearful. They're anxious. Um, they're sort of pessimistic about their futures. Uh, and we know from some of these wilderness studies that that wilderness facilitates kind of the opposite response. It makes people kind of open to new experience. It facilitates social engagement. Um, it causes people to be more curious. It causes people um, to um, calm their anxieties. And, and this is a very new line of research, especially in the area of awe, you know, A-W-E, awe, hmm. sort of awe studies. Um awe as kind of um, an antidote for PTSD. And I thought that was really interesting. And that is actually what I pretty much ended up witnessing with this group of women. You know, I really saw them um, start to sleep better. They started to laugh more and interact more. Um, they started to feel more comfortable kind of within themselves mm. and sort of emerge out of their, their shells really after, you know, five or six days of really, you know, pushing themselves kind of physically. Some of them were kayaking through these rapids or even, you know, standing up on stand-up paddle boards. Mm -hmm. And then I even saw, there was a woman really who had one arm and 
they, they figured out how to get her to hold a paddle. They sort of like strapped a paddle to her kind of non-working arm. And, you know, she said that this gave her so much confidence and so much kind of sense of self-agency that she hadn't felt, you know, in the couple of years since she'd gotten back from Afghanistan. And, you know, what's, what's interesting to me about this is you know, war trauma or the PTSD that results from combat or being in a, a conflict zone uh, that's really a, a, a condensed version of trauma. Um, I think you could you could say that a lot of people, I think you get traumatized here or there. And so the, the idea that just awe as an antidote to this sort of like post-trauma uh, feeling, uh, you know, I, I think that's pretty amazing. And I think it's you know, really, it's, I think it's really going to be important going forward here Um for people to understand that or for us to have a, a broader understanding of, of nature's sort of effect on uh, just people who are traumatized. Um, and, and, yeah, I think that was a very poignant uh, idea that the book moves toward. Uh, but, of course, there were a, f- a few uh, or at least one woman who was like, yeah, no. <laughs> right, do right, exactly. <laughs> doesn't, it doesn't, unfortunately, it doesn't work for everyone. Um, this woman, though, she said the reason it didn't work for her was that Hey, five days just isn't enough time. <laughs> you know, I, I need more time. It's just not like I'm, my my brain's not going to change in five days, honey. I need more time. And I think she's got a really good point because if you look at um, some of the wilderness therapy programs, you know, for example, for troubled teens um, or for or for drug addiction or alcoholism, there are nature rehab programs, and and they go for sometimes two or three months, um, and and sometimes they see some incredible positive effects. So yeah, five days for some people just isn't going to do the trick. And that kind of brings us to the the conclusion of your book, which I, you know I was really happy to see as prescription in there. So what you've learned is that, you know, not necessarily do we all need to take a run down the Salmon River, or um, you know, uh, <laughs> get a weird essential oil toothpaste going in our lives, uh, <laughs> but really any, anyone can kind of benefit from this nature fix. And and I wonder if you could just sort of describe this. this uh, I think you call it a, a pyramid, a nature pyramid. Yeah, I was really interested in this concept because, you know, the reality is most of us can't spend a lot of time in wilderness, sadly. Um, most of us live in cities. Um, it's hard to get out of them. Uh, and so we have to sort of figure out how to how to access nature where we are and where most people are. And I, I feel really passionately about this, that we need to figure out how to get, especially like kids in cities, um, how to get them some of these benefits from from nature. And so um, there are some some researchers, urban planners, especially kind of pushing this idea of the nature pyramid. It, you know, it's based on the food pyramid, sort of what we need to apportion to ourselves in order to really sustain ourselves. And and the bottom of the pyramid, like where we really get most of our access to nature is going to be in cities. It's going to be in these urban areas um, or in the suburbs. And so we have to figure out how to make those spaces higher quality, how to like make the park safe for people to go use. Um, how to figure out um, the best routes to take to work so that we're walking under more trees. You know, there are certain things that people can do, uh, like park prescription programs, actually, that are happening in a number of cities throughout the country. I think there are 35 park prescription programs where doctors are actually helping, especially their young patients, figure out, um, you know, routes to take to school, 
um, or parks that they can go to that are safe, where they can get a little bit of a nature dose. And then in the middle of the pyramid um, are sort of the, you know, these slightly deeper immersions into really high quality natural spaces like national parks or urban parks um, that are big, like big parks or regional parks. And then at the top of the pyramid are sort of these deeper dives into wilderness that, you know, as we've seen, it can really kind of help us recover from trauma, recover from grief. There are times in our lives when we're all going to need some of that really top of the pyramid exposure. And so I guess I was just wondering whether or not, how you've incorporated that into your um, DC experience then. Well, I do feel like, you know, in the two or three years I spent writing this writing this book, I did kind of feel better, <laughs> you know, by the end of it. Um, and I, I, you know, tried to incorporate a lot of the tips that I'd picked up along the way. Um, you know, one of them is that nature really facilitates our, our kind of engagement of all of our senses uh, in a way that we don't necessarily, uh, you know, kind of utilize during our day-to-day -day lives at our desks. And so now, you know, when I take a walk, and, and I'm lucky because D.C. does have a lot of great parks, and that's sort of more green space per capita than a lot of places, um, I make an effort to really um, engage all my senses. So, you know, if I pass a pine tree, you know, I might like slide off a few needles and crumble them and smell them. Or I might try to, um, you know, look at fractal patterns, you know, in a creek or in a winter tree branch. Um, I try to hear birdsong, you know, in a way that I wasn't really keyed into before. And, you know, these are kind of basic exercises for just being more mindful, you know, in our environments. And, and we know that that is also linked to good health. So again, it could be that nature really kind of, you know, just facilitates all these other things that we know are good for us, like exercise and social connection. So uh, if you'd like to know more about nature's impact on the brain, you can find The Nature Fix wherever books are sold, uh, or you can go to our website, hcn.org, where we talk about this stuff all the time. Uh, if you'd like to continue the conversation from this broadcast, you can visit kvnf.org. Florence Williams, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Brian. And thank you all for listening. For West Obsessed, I'm Brian Calvert. Mm -hmm.